This is Nicholas Webb, author of The Innovation Mandate, The Growth Secrets of the Best Organizations in the World. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Hrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Hrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google, search results, and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Hrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Hrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details, go to hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Nicholas Webb back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Innovation Mandate, The Growth Secrets of the Best Organizations in the World, published by HarperCollins. For the past 40 years, Nick has been a serial entrepreneur, launching startup companies and products into many markets and industrial categories. Long before he became such an in-demand keynote speaker, Nick was a successful entrepreneur and inventor, working on the front lines, successfully competing against many of the biggest companies. As the founder and CEO of LeaderLogic, Nick works with Fortune 500 companies throughout the world to help them lead their industries in innovation, strategy, and customer experience design. And as an inventor, Nick has been awarded over 40 patents by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for breakthrough technologies in a wide range of industrial and consumer products, including one of the smallest medical implants. Nick's most recent book, What Customers Crave, which is one of my favorites and about which I had the honor of interviewing him here on the Marketing Book Podcast, What Customers Crave is used by top brands to design their customer experience and innovation strategies. That book was featured as Mashable's top 50 marketing books to read in 2017 and was named as one of LinkedIn's top summer reads for 2017. His other books include The Innovation Playbook and The Digital Innovation Playbook. And interesting fact, he is the first cousin of author, decorated Marine Corps combat veteran, former Virginia Senator and Secretary of the Navy, Jim Webb. Nick, congratulations on the innovation mandate and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be with you again today. Well, I appreciate that. So now enough about you. Uh, let's talk about your first cousin, Jim Webb. He's the author of 10 books and I've read books from both of you and you know, great authorship seems to run in your family and I'm sure you know everybody's always talking about your first cousin as I am right now. He was awarded the Navy Cross and two Purple Hearts in Vietnam. But let me buck you up a little bit there, Nicholas. Let me tell you something about your first cousin. He has not been a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And uh, uh, until he writes books about business and marketing, you're going to be able to hold that over his head. Nice. Finally, I have something over Jim. Yes, yes. And that's, 
He's a very competitive guy. That's really going to bother him. So I'm just, I just want you to feel better about that. When you, you guys are probably still having to sit at the children's table at Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is, as you know, it's, I'm already intimidated by him on all, all aspects of his successes. But you know, as you know, from a literary perspective, writing novels is much harder than writing the kind of books that I write. So he even beats me out in that regard as well. But neat guy, very proud to have him as a as a first cousin. Yeah. So this book, I've got to tell you about a story that happened recently with a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast. And I'm not going to name her name to protect her, her innocence, but not long ago, I heard from her and she had just started a new job. And she's one of those listeners who has actually hired speakers <laughs> that she heard on the Marketing Book Podcast. And in other words, she hired them for paid speaking gigs. And of course, you know, you come on this podcast, so there's absolutely no guarantee that's going to happen. But she's now working for a new company. And it's a B2B, high tech, science oriented company. And she's the new person, and she's a marketer, used to work in sales. But I get the impression from her that the owners and the leadership are running around the halls and they're slamming their fists on the big conference room table saying, We need to innovate. We need to innovate. So, as I understand it, they've then asked her to lead a workshop and a presentation on innovation. <laughs> so she turns to me. I mean, they, they may be thinking innovation is some sort of clever new marketing trick. And right. you may deal with companies like that. And I said, um, I wanted her to read a nincompoopery by uh, Mr. Brandt. He was recently on the podcast. And I said, you've got to read this. And this is another situation where marketers are having to somewhat subversively lead their organizations so that they're going to say, okay, well, there's an approach. This innovation doesn't just happen when you spread some pixie dust around. And I would hope that if the time is right, she'd be able to offer this book up or maybe offer up a whole bunch of them. Hey, wait a minute. Web, you're you're running some sort of pyramid scheme because now she's going to buy a whole bunch of these. Everyone's going to read it. She can turn it into a book club, and they will be the better off for it. So I don't know if you've ever heard of a situation like that, but I guarantee this is going to be helpful for listeners who are somehow they're looking at them like you know, no pun intended. Weave your web, Spider Man. So have you ever run into companies like that where they they just think it's some sort of magical thing suddenly becoming innovative? Well, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I'm here to proclaim that marketing is an innovation activity, right? So that's the, the first point here is that you can have some transformative effects from uh, the aspects of innovation as it connects to all things marketing. But one of the problems is, and it's a real big problem, and you and I have talked about this before when we were talking about what customers crave, is that the overwhelming majority of CEOs believe that their organization is innovative. Yes. The truth of the matter, right? I mean, especially manufacturers of, you know. Right, right. So I, the, the, the challenge that I have, I mean, I work with some of the top brands in the world to help them build out their innovation infrastructure. And what I found is that you have really sort of two scenarios. One is leaders believe that we are already innovative. Mm -hmm. The other problem, and it's a far more pervasive problem, and that is, is that many leaders within organizations believe that innovation is a unicorn. Yes. They think it's a mythical thing that doesn't really, really exist. And, and again, to, to, to your example, I can't tell you how many times I get a call from somebody like her that says, hey, Nick, check it out. So I'm walking down the hall. My CEO just got out of a board of directors meeting. They slammed on the desk that we hereby demand that innovation will be our future. Oh, yeah. And guess what? You're our new director of innovation. Right. right. I mean, you wouldn't proclaim anybody walking down the hall to be the new director of HR or finance mm -hmm. because it requires skills. It requires tools, systems, methods, processes, right? Yeah, and I've heard that uh, they come out of the board of directors meeting, or I've also heard re that referred to as management by in-flight magazine. <laughs> right. The boss comes in on Monday and says, you'll say you're a business-to-business -business industrial manufacturer of boilers. <laughs> and they say, all right, what's our Snapchat strategy? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, or the uh, management by the Harvard Business Review. They read the article in the in-flight magazine. Now it's something we must do. Tomorrow. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let me just quote from the beginning of the book, and then we can really start getting into it. 
Every successful business must devote itself to accomplish certain things. The reward for doing them is profitability and growth. The penalty for failing to do them is bankruptcy. Call these things mandates, if you will. The number one mandate for every business is to make a profit. No matter what else you do, if you don't make a profit sooner or later, no one will lend you any more money, your suppliers will demand payment, and the bank will padlock your front door. Making a profit is non-negotiable. There are other mandates, all of which contribute to success. Growth is a mandate. If your business doesn't grow, it will be left behind. Quality is a mandate. You must make the highest quality product or offer the highest quality service you can. You must do this because you have your own standards of professionalism and because your competitors are relentlessly striving to improve their own performances. Value is a mandate. Your business must provide more benefit per dollar than your competitor. Knowing what your customers crave is a mandate. You do this by engaging with them and connecting with them across a multitude of channels. Depending upon your industry, there may be other mandates such as sustainability or transparency. These are things you absolutely must do to stay in business. This book is about one more mandate, which is just as important as the ones that have long been established. It's the innovation mandate. To be blunt, if your organization doesn't innovate, it's headed for an early demise. Now, Nick, you say that this is important now because we're experiencing two business conditions that we've never seen before. Can you talk about those? Right. Well, they can both be described under the umbrella of the term disruption. You know, it's interesting. My consulting firm did a study. We asked some of the top CEOs, 130 CEOs, what they thought about the impact of disruption in their business. 100%, you would think there'd be some statistical anomaly, but 100% said disruption is critical to our future. And then the second question we ask is, what is disruption? And nobody had an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like some ninja they can't see. Right, right. It's this thing. We know it's – so when you think about this, that why it's a mandate today, there are two things that are happening. One is the size of innovation has become vast. We're seeing in healthcare complete medical specialties being destroyed in favor of a highly consumerized app. In other words, people are going to medical school, getting a degree, and they're being displaced by a icon on somebody's iPhone. We see massive disruption in transportation, in oil and gas. We see it in insurance. We see it uh, in the consumer marketplace. We see it with the silver, uh, with the uh, with the retail uh, tsunami that's happening right now, and companies going out of business at record levels. I think publishing shut- the media industry. Right, right. Everything has changed because of the size of innovation and the speed of innovation. You know, it used to be that we were able to practice incrementalism. We were able to gradually improve, you know, slight improvements in our technology year after year. But not only are products being destroyed, complete categories or complete ways in which we invent business models are being destroyed. So what that means is today that innovation has to be an organizational mandate for two reasons. One is to defend yourself from the disruptive nature of innovation so that you can build a future-ready enterprise. And then secondly, it is the way in which we drive all growth. And, And I think that some of the greatest opportunities are in marketing and sales innovation. You know, when you think about things like Uber, everybody talks about, you know, Uber. And I think that they're missing the point when we talk about Uber because Uber didn't reinvent the bright, shiny object of a car taxi cab. They invented micro moments of movement. You know, we think about Spotify. They didn't just destroy iTunes with a new contraption that you can buy on Amazon. They reinvented the micro moments of music. You know, Netflix invented moments of movies and Amazon reinvented moments of merchandise and the list goes on and on. Apple stores, the most profitable retailers in the world, they've reinvented moments of machines. Everybody is reinventing and the best innovations are not coming from the corner lab in XYZ Corporation. They're coming from marketing departments and new business development departments. What's exciting about this is that the best innovations that will happen over the next five years will be disruptive in nature. They'll be fast moving and they'll be big and more likely than not, they'll be coming from marketeers. Mm. So innovation 
in my opinion, has to be one of the most overused and misunderstood words in business. And I was wondering if you could give us a definition that actually lends clarity and explains what you talk about in the book. Absolutely. It's it's funny. I was in Dublin, Ireland a, a few months ago, and I was with a friend of mine. And uh, the, a colleague of mine from the U.S. introduced me as an inventor. And then after the meeting was over, my, my colleague in Dublin came up to me and said, oh, by the way, Nick, uh, don't let anybody in, uh, you know, introduce you as an inventor because essentially here in Europe, it's just another word for crazy. <laughs> so, oh. Right? Yeah. Well, I'll so, take it. <laughs> right, right, right. So the, the truth of the matter is, is that nobody knows what it is. And, uh-huh. and so, so here's how I define it. Now, keep in mind, I did some research and looking at over 2,000 different definitions of the word innovation. And it's really, really interesting. Even when you look at thought leaders and scholars and all of these definitions, at the end of the day, they're not uh, actionable. So I have a very simple, actionable definition that has four ingredients to it. My definition of innovation is the creation of new value that serves your enterprise and your customer, new value enterprise customer. So that can, that means stuff that we haven't done before. It can be the combination of it can be borrowing a, a distribution model from another industry that we now use in our organization that we've never done before. So it's new. It's not new to the universe. It's not new to to uh, all thinking, but it's a new. It's new to our industry or our organization, and it delivers real value to our company. And it also delivers more value to our customer. So when we think about innovation from an actional perspective, that's a that's a really great way to look at it. New value that serves our enterprise and our customer. Now, value is the caveat. When you think about the value, there is a range of impact that innovations have. There are incremental innovations, which means that a slight improvement on what we've done before. And there's nothing wrong with that. The best way to look at an innovation portfolio is to look at like a stock portfolio. We have some low yield passbook, you know, savings accounts, and then we have some high risk technology stocks. And we want to do the same thing when we innovate. So we have incremental we have landmark innovations, which are slightly better than incremental. They're, you know, they're pretty meaningful, but perhaps higher degree of risk. We have breakthrough innovations, something that's never been done before in our industry and in our organization that really have a big impact in the market. And then there is disruptive innovation. And that's really where we're destroying something and display and, and displacing it in favor of something that's better. And that's the that's where a lot of this is happening. I think the best organizations are thoughtful about having a balanced portfolio of innovations within the organization. And I should say that I have not heard the the word passbook used <laughs> for years, but I know what you're talking about. Next thing you know, we'll be talking about SNH green stamps and uh, oh, I remember that and party lines uh, on the telephone. So let me ask you something about one hit wonders, and we're not talking about musicians. You say, too often we've seen a company make a spectacular innovative breakthrough, ride the wave of success for a year or two, then go bankrupt or get sold for pennies on the dollar. These companies are one-hit wonders. They don't understand the innovation mandate. If it's your goal to make a few quick bucks by going this route, this book isn't for you. Nick, why? Well, I think that Innovation is a continuum, right? It begins with releasing uh, a great product that delivers new value to your organization and your customer. And then you have to realize that you have to manage your product life cycle. Some organizations uh, try to get in, make a lot of money and get out. And the problem with that is, and, and it's a real problem, is that a lot of organizations are here? Here is something that was one of the real epiphanies in researching this book over the last three years is that the biggest problem, if I were to say the biggest problem with most organizations, is that they are doubling down on their commitment to sameness mm. in a time of differentness. And there are there are people within the sameness ecosystem that benefit from the status quo and from a legacy approach. Healthcare is a good example. Hospitals and and clinics that are basing their idea about the way in which they deliver value to patients today, uh, this one hit that they came up with, this one model, with this commitment to the status quo, they are dropping like flies. They're just, it is unbelievable what is happening. And I see this across all markets. So the key thing is, is that this is a bi-directional process. We have to get better insights from our customer and our marketplaces to make certain that we have a continuum of innovation 
so that we don't become the one hit wonder. Even things like Toys R Us. Toys R Us built a business model that was good. It was a warehouse with lots of toys. The problem is, as customers became more consumerized, they wanted a curated experience. That's it. They wanted a curated experience. They went bankrupt because they stopped innovating. And that business didn't go to Amazon. It went to the corner toy store. So when we, if they were to have just been lucid enough to realize that their model, their innovation was not sustainable, they would be with us today. But they are not, and they are emblematic of many organizations who have made the same mistake. Okay, so let's say there's companies out there that want to be perceived as innovative. They want to be perceived as one of the cool kids. Uh, you say in the book that companies that innovate day after day are dominating their markets. Those that take a haphazard or one-hit wonder approach, like we just talked about, to innovation are being vanquished by their rivals. What's the support for that uh, related to are the innovative companies uh, more profitable? Are they growing faster? Or is, is this a, a fad like the internet? I referenced some uh, some research in there that uh, that gives examples that organizations that have high degrees of ideation um, have high degrees of new innovations and have correspondingly high degrees of profitability. If you take a look at the organizations that are driving the highest degree of enterprise value, return on assets, all of the things that we dashboard to evaluate the success of an enterprise has everything to do with the way that they've institutionalized innovation. Right. The, the, the problem is, is that, you know, you have to create a new machine for innovation today. And I, I see organizations that do this one-off in departments, and, and usually those departments are within marketing departments where they have said, look, we're going to re-innovate the way in which we distribute. You know, look at you, – you see Nordstrom's and you see Target and you see other Sprouts that are now innovating new ways in which they deliver value to their customer. They realize that in the time of home delivery of all things – that they need to be able to provide ways for people. And, and I think Walmart is another really big example. I mean, could, could Walmart innovate? If you take a look at their merchandising innovations and the way in which they're delivering value to that customer base has really become very, it's very dynamic and very innovative. And, and innovation is really, again, just being able to understand what your customers love and hate, and a discussion we've had before, and to transmute those insights into those those value propositions, rather it's a bright, shiny object, device, or technology, or rather, and more commonly, it's a new business model, our way in which we serve our customer. And let me just add to that for the listener. Nicholas said the focus needs to be on the customer, what the customer wants, even though, and you didn't say this, but you do in the book about how customers can't even always articulate what they want. But it's not a bunch of engineers sitting around saying, let's make some really cool technology. Surely that's what the customer wants. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about Ahrefs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google search results and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools include the site audit. This crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. And you're going to be surprised and maybe a little bit embarrassed at what the site audit will find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Another one is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. Another one is Keyword Explorer. This is great to have before you create even more content for your site. This tool helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas 
and gauge how difficult it is to rank for them and then calculate their traffic potential. You can also confirm what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. So, Even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm, give them a king's ransom, but don't be upset when you find out they're using Ahrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, Are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure, there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit ahrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And now, back to the show. So... I'm I'm still thinking there's some doubting Thomases out there. And what I want to ask is, this is really only about Silicon Valley, right? This is just high-tech companies that, that are innovative, and, and you need an advanced degree to capture innovation and reap profits, right? <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. And that's, the, that's kind of the point here, is that small little entrepreneurial organizations to large enterprises have the same systems, methods, and tools and processes that they can gain access to to deliver more value to their customer. And to your point, rarely is it a Silicon Valley bright, shiny object. Right. You, know, you know, it's not the next killer app. It's, it's, and, and you know what? When I see organizations that are really, really, really good at innovation, what I find is first and foremost, they're customer-centric. Yes, now, really customer-centric. They're observing their customers. They're not saying going to the sales team and using that as their only insight into you know, what's, what's on the customer's mind. They really uh, observe them. They, they take them seriously, and they look for insights. Right, right. And as we talked about in, in, you know, in my book, What Customers Craved, I talked about these new perso- these, this new way to do personification because so many organizations, so many CEOs and marketeers are in the same old rut of trying to divide up their customers by market demography rather than love-hate personas. You know, right. really need to know what our customers hate. We need to know what they love. You know, the other thing is, is that at, at the end of the day, we really need to invent across the customer's journey. We need to, and, and not just across the journey, but ac- those micro moments within those various touch points of the customer experiences. And that means that the best organizations are innovating the way in which they manage their supply chain. Mm-hmm. The messaging, their market messaging is be- becoming far more innovative and clever. Uh, the way in which they build business models, many of the best organizations, I mean, you look at Carvana, take a look at some of the, the new innovations, they're completely changing. What, what Carvana and others has, have realized is, is that generally speaking, most people are suspect or you could even say hate car salesmen. So they realized that if they could remove the pain and the friction in a new model, then they could have a significant benefit. Now there's an entire industry that is in the business of removing friction and contact with car salesmen, right? Yeah. That's that's amazingly innovative and it's working. Well, but it's not working with me because I have a 2003 car and it keeps working and (laughs) I don't get a new one, mainly because I don't have to go through that experience again. Yeah. And so the, the best innovators are identifying ways in which we deli- that You know, if you break your business down into finance, you know, we're involved in a project right now where we put together a strategic performance group and we're innovating the way in which we test new budgetary processes and ways in which we build more financial dashboards and indices and so on. So there isn't any part of your organization that is not the benefit. I, I recently did a project for an organization in Michigan and this organization manufactured uh, kitchen sinks and so on for commercial kitchens. And um, it turns out that, you know, they were that they're like most organizations I've worked with. There is a lot of these silos where there's not cross-pollination and there wasn't this sort of central idea about innovation. And it turns out that the people in warranty, when they got them all together and we started hacking, how do we create better experiences for 
our customers, they begin to realize in warranty that about 80% of the time, a customer called them back upset because something didn't ship with an, an adapter, adapter fitting. So 70 to 80% of the time, they didn't get this adapter and they hated that. It changed their whole opinion of the organization and the folks in manufacturing didn't know that so they could build out a robust system to make sure that that part, it was just that collaboration. And, and that's one of the big things. The best organizations in the world are now using a thing called enterprise social networks where they put out challenges and say, hey, how can we improve the way in which we serve our customer? And they're, they're having a discussion and these discussions result in ideas and those ideas are put into innovation pipelines, created, built, shrink-wrapped and shipped out to the marketplace. That's such a great reminder that one of the most important things that companies and certainly marketers and salespeople can do to start to get at the truth, in air quotes, what in your customer's life do they absolutely hate? <laughs> you might be able to help them out. So think about you know the Uber, the Lyfts, the ride-sharing folks. They, they were all kinds of things people hated about trying to get a car to take them someplace. And it was just a, a target-rich environment. Now, let me just go back to something that I wanted to mention earlier. I asked a question about, do the better performing companies uh, have much more innovative uh, activity? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes, because <clears throat> I read the book. But there is data in the book that will make a chief financial officer's heart flutter. <laughs> if you want to get your CFO on board, show them that part of the book and show them that, that the numbers are just, it's statistically significant, I would think, those that have an active innovation program. But let's talk about departments, okay? You write that the overwhelming majority of business leaders believe that innovation lives only in the research and development department. Right. Talk about why that is a near-fatal mistake, and let's start to get into examples of where companies are finding innovation in some of the most surprising places. You need to break down the walls of that R&D department. Go. So first of all, you have to realize that the best innovations that are going to happen in the organization right off the bat will be enterprise innovations. Remember, we want to create new value that serves the enterprise and the customer. Uh, so research and development and all things operation have typically been a case of the Crips versus the Bloods, right? It's just like this gangland warfare. It's, mm -hmm. it's hilarious and yet sad all at the same time. And we should add that Nick lived in California for a long time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but he had to leave and move to Arizona. So I'm, right. you know, I'm, I'm just saying maybe there's a connection there, but go ahead. <laughs> well, Isn't in Arizona where all the uh, witness protection people go? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I can't say anything. I'm not allowed to. Okay. You know, I think, though, that, that your point is well taken, is that there really is this sort of riff. And I think, unfortunately, when you look at the headwaters of why that's a problem, it becomes a problem because at the end of the day, the organization has not defined innovation. But in order to make this work, you have to do what the book suggests and the title suggests. You, If an organization, and I mean at the board and CEO level, have not made innovation a mandate, then the various departments don't have the connective tissue to be able to collaborate, to co-create, and to move ideas into value deployment. And so the, what, I, what I argue in the book is that the systems aren't complicated. Anybody can do it. It doesn't require some bozo consultant to come in and do a bunch of graphs and charts. You, although I do that work, uh, you, you, you really don't, you can do this stuff. It's, it's, but it isn't about the bright, shiny object in a time of disruption. It's about how we create superstar strategic excellence within our enterprise. I'll give you a practical example. We were working with an organization that needed to save $36 million. This is a $1.6 billion money uh, organization in order to hit some very important financial targets. So they brought in a bunch of you know lean Six Sigma folks and waste out folks, and they spent about $7 million in a couple of years. And during that period of time, they found about $430,000 in right? That was so, enough to pay part of their fee, maybe. Right, right. So they lost six and a half million dollars <laughs> trying to save $35 million, whatever the number was. So the, the point is, is that, how, so how do you fix that? When you took a look at the initiative, they reached out to their 3,500 employees and said, hey, we need to start saving money around here and use better financial stewardship. 
And I can't imagine anybody getting dressed in the morning saying, oh, I can't wait to get to work and practice good financial stewardship. So my organization, it just, it isn't a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we said, let's try the superpower of innovation. We built out a, a, a social enterprise. It's very much like an internal Facebook for the, uh, the organization. You can build them in SharePoint or you can use uh, some of them that are just all ready to go with just add water. And we, we put together a challenge saying, tell us about the biggest ways you lose money in our waste money in your department. We called it the biggest loser challenge. Ah. And we competition. So we socialized it. We gamified it. We sent it out to everybody to launch the program. Then the first thing that came over was a receptionist that saw invoices going by where these, this hospital was actually spending a million dollars a year watering house plants inside hospitals and clinics where infection control said you're not even supposed to have house plants. And then ultimately it wound up saving about $47 million because it became this really fun competition where people were saying, Oh, you think that's lame? Well, we waste money over here. And we wait, that's innovation. Mm -hmm. We, we, we put together a challenge. We asked people to participate in the game of innovation. We took the innovations. We put them into a pipeline. We evaluated their, val their value to the enterprise and the customer. And then the ones that made sense, we shrink wrapped them and we shipped them. That's what this is all about. And you can do that in HR. You can do that in finance. You can do it in every aspect of your business. You can improve the value by delivering more value to your enterprise and customer. That's terrific. And it reminds me of a client of ours that is a construction company, but it's an asphalt plant. They build interstate highways and things like that. And after about 100 years, they did an ESOP where they bought themselves back from the original owner. And so then they had to change a lot of things they were doing and they were involving the employees more and all that sort of thing. And the CEO was telling me that they had a couple different asphalt plants and one was in a different market. And the way that the, a lot of these road construction jobs were being awarded had changed. In other words, you had to be based in this in a certain place and you had to have your asphalt plant there. And so he was presenting all the numbers to all the employees and uh, or groups of employees. And they were talking about how this one asphalt plant was struggling and they just didn't know what to do with it. And he said a new employee, relatively new, and this guy was what they call a shovel operator, meaning he actually holds a shovel. You know, when you see roads being built, there's quite a few of them out there having to spread the asphalt. And he said, well, sir, why don't we just sell that plant? And nobody had thought of that. <laughs> and they did. And it worked out really well. But it was something where just getting their employees involved, uh, he said, and after that, he became a big evangelist for getting ideas from everyone there. But speaking of asphalt, for those people that are still maybe thinking, oh, no, this is only for the really high-tech, cool kids, you know, the kind of companies that have ping-pong tables and people wear jeans and they have uh, snack bars and all that. Talk about the company in the book that sells sand. And I want you to talk about that because it's a commodity. And I don't think there have been a lot of developments in recent years in sand. Would I be correct in that assumption? I think that's right. Yeah, in fact, it was an organization that sold aggregate, which is basically, you know, sand and gravel and rock. And, and you know, what was interesting is, is that when you think about it, it's pretty easy to say we are in an ancient business with a technology that uh, is uh, not of our creation that we just move around. And when they when they were thinking about this this project of, of innovation, they asked one of their their new hires, you know, what what is it that we can actually do here? How can we actually make this uh, something where we can apply the principles of innovation? And it turns out one of their biggest costs, and it was a cost that was highly variable, was the fuel cost associated with managing shipping this really really heavy material from one place to the next. And historically, they had used uh, shipping containers. And then they realized that there were some new innovations that were happening that would be new to their organization. Again, not new to the universe, but certainly new to them, where they could actually uh, get involved with this cargo uh, shipping containers that were battery powered, that were essentially working remote control. And they took a look at it and realized that they could actually hitch their wagon to this new innovation. And as a result of that, they're in a, and they are actually in the process right now of deploying 
this new innovation as this technology matures, which could have a very, very big impact on their their biggest cost, which of course is transportation. So I think it's a good example that even something in, in terms of the way in which we manage supply chain or getting a product from one place to the other, just simple ideas can have amazing impacts. Mm. So let's walk through some of the different types of innovation. And I should add that at the end of the book, I mean, you've got checklists, you show exactly, the, the entire book shows, I would say, a CEO, how you can start to set this up. And it brought to mind the idea that you've often heard in sales, which is, you know, there's variations between different types of sales systems you might employ. The point is to use one. <laughs> Don't obsess about which one. Just start following a system. And that was one of the big takeaways that this reader took, uh, which is you've simply got to set up a system of innovation, and it's not some sort of black magic, some sort of wizardry. It's really very straightforward. But I was wondering if you could talk about a couple of the different types of innovations, because uh, most people think of really only one, and those are like empty innovations, incremental innovations, and uh, breakthrough and disruptive. Right. And some innovations aren't really starting with empty. You know, there they're really isn't, uh, they're not uh, an innovation at all. They're just uh, probably something that delivers really no value. And I see a lot of this. I mean, I'll go a tra- to a trade show. It'll, it'll be XYZ Corporation. And the subtitle of their, or their slogan of the organization is always, you know, driving innovation, you know, through creative, you know, right? Yeah, you know, our those. widgets are made out of titanium. Right, right. There you go. But that, but, but the point is, it adds no value in the mind of the customer. Right, and that's the problem. Oftentimes, organizations innovate for the sake of creating newness. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the uh, anatomical features of the definition of innovation, newness of itself is not valuable. And then when we think about the types of innovation, that's where we get into the gradients of value. And the different people describe them different ways. Yeah. Uh, some people talk about empty, which are, uh, are basically innovations that are just simply different. They deliver no new value to the enterprise or the customer. There are incremental innovations. And a lot of people are very critical of incremental innovations, saying, oh, that's just a, a slight improvement. Take a look at WD-40, a company I admire a great deal. And here's an organization that's been around for a really, really long time. And maybe, just maybe, they have created the perfect product. Everybody knows it. They love it. It works. It's cheap. But they realize that one of the biggest problems with WD-40 is is that the little red tube that you put onto the nozzle fell off. Always. I mean, always. So they thought, gee... And if it didn't fall off, by the way, it would be sticking out in outer space and you'd have no way of putting your can of WD-40 somewhere where, you know, where that that little straw was able to live. So they came up with a very simple innovation, a flip up straw. Seems pretty incremental. It's just a different straw. That was an incredible innovation for them. It was incredibly well received. It protected them from somebody else doing that. And that's a good example of what great innovation does. You could call it incremental, yet it was very impactful to their customer, to their enterprise, and their brand. Mm -hmm. And these breakthrough innovation is where we completely change the way. And I see this with, you know, organizations. Some do it by way of strategic acquisition where they try to build these landmark innovations, meaning that, you know, we're going to change the way that we deliver value. Uh, Take a look at Progressive Insurance, another company I have a great deal of respect for. They do some really cool things. They have an app that, uh, uh, that a user can download, and it basically monitors how you're driving. There are programs like a uh, uh, Progressive has a little module you can plug into your car that monitors the way you're, you're actually driving. Now, is it good for the customer? Yeah, because the customer gets a better price if they behave themselves when they're driving. And Progressive gets an enterprise benefit because they get to mitigate their risk, which is exactly what they do for a living. So when we think about these little tiny things, it is incredible about how they can have a major, major impact. In researching, you know, a few thousand companies and in writing the innovation mandate, what I found is that some of the coolest innovations were just people noticing different ways to improve the way they delivered products, the way in which they impacted their customer, the way in which they managed their internal processes and their throughput. I'll give you a perfect example. There's a clinic in Cleveland 
uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Cincinnati. And this clinic is an amazing clinic. But they, one of the problems they had is that their customers were upset. And it's a very competitive area of healthcare, a specialty healthcare practice. Were, it turns out that there's a new study that finds that if a, if a patient waits for more than 15 minutes to see the doctor, that patient goes from liking the doctor to hating the doctor. So they knew that they needed to reinvent their patient flow. And so they started bringing in graphs and charts and people that did fast track methodologies and throughput methodologies. It was impressive to watch all of these people trying to solve the problem. And we came in and we took a look at it. And it turns out that they made no more money by overbooking than if they booked the amount of patients that they could see in a timely basis where the patient didn't have to wait for more than 10 minutes. They made no more money. They saw no more patients. But they irritated more people. They irritated, and one of the one of the the nurses that worked in one of their mini clinics said, "Why are we overbooking?" And nobody can answer that question. <laughs> well, we can see more patients. Well, no, we can't because the doctor can only see so many. But wait, does has anybody asked that question? Why we overbook? No, we know that people are writing bad reviews of us online. We know we're losing business to the competition down the street. So after they asked that really important question from a nurse that was problem, opportunity, and patient-facing, they were able to say, we're not going. They, they removed one appointment a day and went from a 55-minute wait to a 10-minute wait by wow. removing So that's incredible. And I think that what that does – and then when you took a look at the organic growth and you take a look at the quality of work life for the, for the employees, it was just – it was incredibly impactful. Mm. There are case examples after case examples where problem, opportunity, and customer-facing stakeholders within organizations are really the best innovators. They just need a place and a voice and a, a target. And that's why I recommend in my system, do innovation challenges, do innovation hackathons, do innovation safaris, do these activities. They're inexpensive, they're fun. And the other thing is it turns out that one of the biggest problems we have in enterprise in North America today is attracting and keeping great talent. Millennials today are, are far more interested in working in an organization that sees where they can see their contribution of being meaningful. And when you engage millennials, this new workforce, and give them the opportunity for them to give you their ideas, which are almost always great, mm-hmm. turn those ideas into deployment, that is the essence of a quality of work life. You attract better people, you improve your quality of work life, you collaborate across silos, and ultimately you create more value for your customer and your enterprise. Yeah, so it's it really can help with the uh, recruitment and retention of employees. What's the what what are the questions that managers or management should ask before they suddenly come in on Monday and say we're going to become an innovative company? In other words, what are what are the top causes or cause of innovation failure? The two biggest causes in, from an infrastructure perspective is number one is they never really pulled out of the driveway. They never really started an innovation initiative in the first place. So you, you have to make the commitment to do it holistically, not taking a swipe at it. Mm-hmm. Or pointing at somebody when you come out of the boardroom saying you're in charge of innovation. Right. If you're going to do that, train them, give them the life support system. In some cases, that can be software, it can be consulting, it can be infrastructure development. Management can, backing. Right. Management backing authority. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing you got to do is you have to really, really commit to this. And, and I think that during that commitment process, you have to ask that why question. Why are we doing this? Innovative companies are far more profitable. Innovative organizations are far more safe in terms of future readiness because they're inventing the future. They're not reacting to it. Organizations that have collaborative innovation and an innovation operating system, as I talk about in the book, those organizations are the rock star organizations. They're the ones that we all want to be. They're doing cool things. They love their they love and know their customer. They're creating a fun, collaborative workspace and a high quality of, of, of life. In, tech, in fact, one of the things that was interesting for me as I was looking at this, you can go into Glassdoor, take a look at all the super high-rated Glassdoor ratings, and you will see those organizations are almost always incredibly innovative. Look at organizations that have really low Glassdoor ratings. Those organizations are rarely innovative at all. And they certainly don't have sustained innovation. So I think you have to start with the fact that this has to be done holistically. 
And you have to to identify the fact that you have to say, hey, innovation is going to make us more money. Innovation is going to increase sales. Innovation is going to increase profitability. Innovation is going to increase customer promotion and customer satisfaction. It will do those things absolutely guaranteed. So doing it holistically is number one. Number two is it has to be customized to the uniqueness of your organizational culture, your industry, where you currently live across the innovation continuum. So it has to be unique. Don't do a just add water solution because there's no such thing. Right. So I suppose that by the time companies bring you in, they're they're really very interested in this. But what do you say to company leaders who you may run into, or maybe somebody who sees one of your talks, who say something like, Nicholas, we'd love to innovate, but we just don't have time. We work full days around here, and it's all we can do to keep up. Nobody has a spare minute to engage in frivolous experiments. Right. Well, unfortunately, there. this is what I – I see this a lot. I, I just did a big project for one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the country. And they were – they tried to start innovation by building this Google-ish type room. And they would have rah-rah, Google-y <laughs> hackathons, and they would do shark – tank uh, innovation, you know, uh-huh. activities, you know, pitch fests. And I bet they had a hashtag too. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And, and it was, as they say in Texas, it was a case of big hat, no cattle. Oh yeah. That, and so the, and, and, and it failed with mathematical certainty as these always do. And then the CEO therefore concluded that innovation was a unicorn. Unfortunately, that is a very, very common problem is that the two biggest problems that I have when I see, and it's sad to see it because I know these beautiful people that wake up every day that want to come in and have an impact in their work that are given fake innovation initiatives. It's so sad to to Mm. get them on board and to see them excited about the opportunity to, to have a voice and to solve problems and to invent new ideas. Uh, it is really sad when they get their heart broken because when you do this wrong and you launch it incorrectly, it's really, really hard to resurrect the innovation brand within your. You got to wait for people to die to to resurrect the innovation brand within your company if you if you started with a failed initiative. Well, and that's probably an organization that's saying, okay, let's just endure this because it'll go away in a month, like every other initiative that they bring out. You know. There- that we call it innovation fatigue. They get another one every six weeks and they know, I actually sat down with an executive a few months ago where he said, Hey, look, I'm going to ignore this. Like I do everyone, because I know that another six weeks, but there'll be the next major strategic priority. And, 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 and companies need to be careful about authoring strategic initiatives because that problem of strategic initiative and the uh, uh, fatigue is a real one. Well, for those that are, uh overtaken by inertia and they're very they think they're comfortable and they don't want to do this. I want to quote from Aaron Martin, who's the senior vice president of strategy and innovation at Providence Health and Services, which you mentioned in your book. He said, if you disrupt your own business through innovation, you have a say in the future. If you don't, you're basically leaving it to others to dictate the terms of how the future will go. And just to add to, there was just, I'm sorry, but there's just some juicy bits from your book that have to be quoted. And one of them had to do with, again, back to the commitment. Make sure that you're not going to give everybody commitment fatigue. You say that the embrace of innovation must be well thought out and sustained. Here's some tough love. Stocking your employee lounge with ping pong tables, installing whiteboards, hosting quarterly hackathons, and proclaiming casual Fridays isn't the way to ensure innovation and readiness. Leaders often seize upon the quick fix tactics and convince themselves they are ready for innovation, when in fact, the critical ingredients of innovation are missing. Explain why extra money for generating uh, innovative ideas is not really the best way to go in rewarding your employees. It really isn't because it, it, what we find is in terms of the quality of work life and the employee perception of innovation, it is amazing how much the average person that walks into the red brick building every day just wants to be recognized for something that's of their genesis. You know, the iPad award can be used in pitchathons and in certain areas, but really what they want 
is they want to feel like their life has meaning. They want to be able to collaborate and to co-create and to see. I, I happen to, as you know, work as an adjunct professor of healthcare at one of the country's largest health sciences university, where I also serve as the chief innovation officer. And I have a team there. And I and my team is comprised of millennials. And I have to say, it is amazing how much they believe in my mission. It's actually breathtaking for them. Every day they wake up and they get to be involved in a mission that matters to them. They get to make decisions. They get to move things forward. They are, they are given permission to add value to our students and add value to our enterprise every day. And I see it in my own work, with my in, in the work I do in my consulting practice and the work I do at the university, is that people really respond well when you because remember these people are problem opportunity and customer facing let's take their ideas and transmute those into new value and we can create beautiful elegant fun and exciting systems to make that happen you don't need big budgets you don't need to turn your office into google but what you do need to do is to change your philosophical outlook as to how you deliver value to your customer and your enterprise. And if you're brave enough, if you're a CEO or a leader and you're brave enough to do this, the returns on innovation are absolutely guaranteed. Mm, well said. So the last thing we, we have time to talk about in the book is you mentioned a company, I think it's in Boston, and they build apps. And one of the ways they test them is to see how easy they are to navigate is they get a room uh, full of people and get them drunk and then <laughs> test the results. And I was just wondering, maybe we could talk about this afterwards. Could, could you put me in touch with them? Because I, I feel compelled to volunteer to help right, that organization right. out. But, you know, isn't that interesting? That is an innovative way because one of the things that we have talked about in new product development is a term that we call dummy down. And dummy down means how do we make this product or this app so simple that even an idiot could do it? And that's always the question. Well, you know, idiots are hard to find, and uh, but drunks are ubiquitous, right? Well, and then if you get a drunken idiot – You've, you've really uh, caught the brass ring there. <laughs> right. But I thought it was great that this organization decided that, hey, if we're going to develop something that is so simple, because simplicity is about frictionless experiences. And one of the things we know, and, and I, I talk about this in my past book, the, What Customers Crave, is that it's all about friction. We need to eliminate friction and pain, Lim eliminate friction and pain. If we can do that in marketing and if we can do that in our business, we get happy customers. But friction is complexity. And so how do we test complexity? They came up with the idea of getting people drunk and then having them test their app to find out if even a drunk could do it. You know, right? It, I thought I, that I'm was here to help. I'm here to serve. <laughs> but I do think, you know, I, I guess you could argue against this approach and, and so on. But it was interesting, and I think it's emblematic of what we can do. We can get really clever and really innovative in the way in which we try to achieve organizational and customer goals. Terrific. Well, Nick, this book, I was excited to be able to interview you about it. And let me, it was similar to another book for a different reason that was on the podcast. And it was by Tiffany Bova. She wrote Growth IQ. And basically, the book outlines the 10 ways that companies grow. It's uh, pretty airtight. And it's not like she came up with all these, but she assembled it together in a really interesting book and said, here are the 10 ways to grow. And I thought this is such a helpful book for marketers and salespeople. Again, it's the slapping palm on the conference table of some business owner who's saying, I want to grow. I want to grow. Go go grow something. Go, go do something. And trust me, I've worked at a company like that. And instead, they can say, well, these are some of the ways that you know, we, we should be thinking about it. In other words, there's some strategy behind it. There's an approach where you can work much smarter rather than much harder. And I thought there was a very similar parallel with your book where somebody's screaming, we've got to be innovative. We're, we're innovative. We're going to get T-shirts that say we're innovative. Well, okay, boss, um, here's a book I've, I've recently heard about that I've read that I think might be really helpful to get, help us get some traction. It might show us you know, some of the pitfalls of trying to be innovative, but it can really dramatically change the trajectory of our business. So, Nick, if, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think that the title says it all, is that today in a time of massive disruption, where things are moving very quickly, where digital ubiquity and connection architecture and enabling technologies and hyper-consumerization and all of these factors that are driving the current 
uh, marketplace ecosystem, all of that happening, we need to have innovation as an enterprise core competency. I believe that, or, and what I tried to do with this book is to take the insane complexity of innovation and make it fun, make it elegant, make it understandable, most importantly, make innovation actionable. Yes, it's not some boogeyman. Just read this book. It's less than 200 pages, people, <laughs> and it'll show you how you can approach this. It's just, you know, it's almost like uh, search engine optimization. To so many people, it's uh, mysterious and, you know, there's all this wizardry behind it. No, there's, no, it's not. <laughs> Stop, stop thinking that. There are some very specific things you can do, and, and it works. So if a listener did just one thing today that might help them put in action ideas from your book, what would that be? At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves the questions. And I think we, that I would encourage the one thing that they do is to ask the question, is our organization truly innovative? Do we have the systems and the methods and the tools today? Do, are we innovative? If, we're, if the answer is not, then I think that they need to determine whether or not they are ready to begin the process of protecting the organization against disruption and more interesting and more excitingly, authoring new innovations that will help them drive growth and profitability. I think it's the question, are we innovative? If they ask that question honestly and the answer is no, I, I think the rest speaks for itself. Well said. And all, like I touched on earlier, sales don't just happen. <laughs> Innovation doesn't just happen. You put together a system and you start to get results and then you can uh, tweak it, improve upon it. There you go. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading now that you have time? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, Mike Welsh uh, is one of the world's top futurist speaker, a really cool guy, and I've had the opportunity to get to meet and know him. And he recently came out with a book, which I quickly read, but I'm reading again now for the second time, called The Algorithmic Leader. And I think it's a great book that talks about the impact of artificial intelligence and some of the emerging technologies that are coming at us much quicker than most, most executives realize. And I, I think it was a really, really good piece. And, and again, it was so good when I, when I did my first quick review of it that I'm actually reading it for the second time. So The Algorithmic Leader by, by Mike Walsh. Terrific. So, Nick, we will include links to your site, which is nickweb.com. That's two Bs on web. And your uh, Twitter and uh, your LinkedIn profile. And uh, we'll include links to all the books that you've mentioned on uh, this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so that listeners can find more about those things, then they can also reach out with you and connect with you. And I hope they'll thank you for being a guest. And Nick, also, you've also got a uh, special website for the book with an offer that the listeners can take advantage of. Tell them about that. Yeah, actually, I'm really excited about this because it really is a significant off, uh, offer. You know, a lot of authors will do eBooks and little tiny things, but I actually wrote a complete book on how do you lead innovation? How do you actually apply leadership principles to lead innovation in your organization. So I wrote a 58,000 word, if I remember correctly, book called Innovation Leadership just for the purpose of making it available as a value add. This is not just an ebook. It's a full, real book. And they can simply go to the innovationmandate.com and then enter in the super duper secret code of Nick's book offer where they see the book cover for innovation leadership and they can download the entire PDF. I really think it's a good piece to kind of as certainly a great supplement to the innovation mandate. And that's Nick's book offer. No apostrophes, right? Yep. That's correct. Okay. Super. And we'll also include a link to the innovation in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for you, dear listener, if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Innovation Mandate, The Growth Secrets of the Best Organizations in the World. The author is Nicholas Webb. Nick, thank you very much for coming back on the Marketing Book Podcast. It was a blast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that closes the book on episode 243 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs. To start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website, start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting hrefs.com. And that's spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Nir Eyal back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. And just to give you some uh, goals, Nick, my sense is that you could use some more goals in your life. One more book, and you will be a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three-Timers Club. Wow. And that gets you discounts on meals at restaurants that are offering discounts, and it gets you (laughs) half-priced drinks at watering holes that are offering half-priced drinks. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, you know, I don't know if I told you, I actually have a book that is uh, half done. It'll be done in the end of September, and it'll be out a year from now called Heyday. And it's uh, it was a it was a uh, really exciting book to do, and I've already done most of the chapters. Now we're going back and and basically building out some of, some more of the infrastructure. Really, really fun book. And that subtitle of the book is "How to Make Every Day the Best Day of Your Life." And the, what's and it's not a business book. It's uh, it's a personal growth book, which I never thought I would write. And uh, so heyday, you know, is a term that refers to you know when you're at your when you're at the top of your game, right? And, and basically, the book basically says, you know, most people peak and the, the balance primarily never peak at all. 